This is Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. This podcast is sponsored by The Forward. Stay up to date with unlimited access to news, culture, and opinion all through a Jewish lens. And for our listeners, for 2NJB listeners, get six months of The Forward for 15 bucks. Visit forward.com slash partner offer and enter promo code 2NJB to get an exclusive offer for podcast listeners. Also in collaboration with Arutz Sheva, IsraelNationalNews.com. And last but not least, in collaboration with Australian Jewish News, check them out at ajn.timesofisrael.com. Our guest today is a great friend of the podcast. We've had the honor of hosting him quite a few times, but always in a very different capacity than today. In the past, we've introduced Dr. Michael Oren as someone who served as the deputy minister in the prime minister's office, as member of Knesset in the Kulanu party, and of course, as the Israeli ambassador to the United States in the years 2009 to 2013. But today, we're introducing Dr. Michael Oren as a novelist. Not many people know this. Dr. Oren has released several nonfiction books in the past, including Sand Devil, Reunion, and a collection of short stories titled The Night Archer and Other Stories. As you can see here, if you're watching our video. It's not nonfiction, it's... Fiction. It's fiction. Sorry, fiction. <laughs> fiction. Non-fiction was the history book. It's, ah, a, non, yeah, yeah. it's a non-non-fiction. <laughs> yeah, non-non-fiction. <laughs> yeah. Non-fiction. Yeah. But in just about a week, you're about to... Uh, your latest novel is going to hit the bookshelves, to All Who Call in Truth tells the story of Sandy Cooper, a guidance counselor and a coach in a suburban junior high school whose otherwise uneventful life turns upside down after he gives a word of advice to a troubled student which embroils him in a forbidden relationship and the exposure of a twisted murder. Ooh. Juicy. Ooh. Aside from his extensive service to the country, Dr. Michael Oren also taught history at the Ben Gurion University. He was a visiting professor at Harvard, Yale, and Georgetown. We are thrilled to be joined by Dr. Oren on the podcast today to talk about his new novel and, of course, a bit of politics. A little bit. I know, I know. How, could, how could we not? <laughs> <Eitan>. oh, <laughs> always good to be back here. Oh, thank you so much. Thank guy. you so much. And for, for your nonfiction books as well. Okay, guys, before we start, we have sponsors in plural. Yes, yes, our sponsors. So first of all, if you're listening to this podcast, you have some interest in Israel uh, for sure. And you're probably dying to come here. Okay, you're just looking for the opportunity. The most vaccinated okay. country in the world. Exactly. And if you're looking for that opportunity, Masai Israel Journey is the answer. Okay, so check out Masai Israel Journey. You can find them at masaiisrael.org slash two nice Jewish boys. Masaiisrael.org slash TWO nice Jewish boys. Masai Israel uh, Journey, they are the marketplace for long term opportunities here in Israel. Um, you can explore your career path. You can live out your passions. You can make a positive impact on the world. You were on Masai. I was on Masai. I was. Uh, and look where I am now. No, really, guys, it changes your life, these programs. It's a, a really amazing opportunity to experience Israel and to also grow in your career. Masai's Israel Journey uh, allows you to uh, work and study remotely from Israel. So you come here and you can work and study remotely. That's since the pandemic. But there's no need for that anymore because Israel is fully vaccinated. Yep. Uh, you don't need to apply. Uh, you don't need to pause your life. Okay. You don't need to know Hebrew, but you do get funding. So go to MasaiIsrael.org slash two nice Jewish boys and check them out. And so yes. very exciting new sponsor. This episode is sponsored by the Susie and Kevin Davis Foundation, which supports New York City's underserved community through its nonprofit First Workings. Guys, Kevin Davis and Susie Davis are amazing, and their foundation is even more amazing. Check them out, First Workings. You can find more information about them at firstworkings.org. Basically, First Workings arranges paid internships, mentorships, and extensive workplace readiness training for very bright students from New York's public schools. Check them out, 
firstworkings.org. Highly recommended. And consider supporting their efforts because it's really an amazing You uh, just cause. know with Kevin and Susie Davis and their amazing foundation, you just know every shekel you put is in gonna, there is a good shekel. It's going to go spent. to the right place. Yeah. Now, people say, okay, when did, when did you start writing fiction? You know, when did you start moving away from history and politics and diplomacy to write fiction? They got it backwards. I started as a fiction writer. I started when I was 12, 13 years old. I came home from school one day. I had a strange feeling, not the feeling you expect from a 12, 13-year-old boy. It was a poem. I sat down and wrote a poem. You know, Who cries for the soul of a pigeon? Like a depressive adolescent <laughs> poem. And every day I came home from school and I wrote a poem. By the age of, again, by 13, I had a, I had a collection of poems. I, I brought them into New York to the publishing house, to Knopf. They rejected it. I went up to my room and cried for a few days. Little I know it was like the first of many, many rejections. I would save them all. They would fit, you know, today in a file about the thickness of a Manhattan phone book, and if you remember what that was. And, um, and, but I kept on writing, and I wrote short stories. I wrote uh, film scripts. Um, and when I was 17, I wrote a, a film called Comrades in Arms, a short film that I also produced and directed, um, a World War I film that won the PBS Young Filmmakers Contest, like the first, one, first prize. It was on TV. And I thought, okay, obviously I'm going to go to Hollywood. And when I was uh, in my early 20s, I went to Hollywood and I got a job as Orson Welles' assistant. Now, wow, I don't know if you really? remember Orson Welles. Of course. When I talk to people your age and I say I was Orson Welles' assistant, they use film. film ah, film, so they, so. They, they look at me and they say, they wow, you, you're so, so old. You're so old. <laughs> no Orson Welles. You know, was he, he, was the, he was a horrible human being. But um, <laughs> Really? <laughs> he was... He was he was massively obese and cursing all the time. Um, you guys will not remember this, but he did a series of commercials for Paul Masson Wine Company, which everyone of my generation remembers. He says, Paul Masson said 100 years ago, no wine before its time. And I held the cue cards for that commercial. Wow. <laughs> wow. So um, That's crazy. And I thought I, thought I would go on to, to write, but I also had this other path in life, which was my Zionist and Israel path. And I started coming here to Israel when I was 15 to work on kibbutz. And, um, you know, I think the kibbutzim were very happy to see me go because I left a trail of wrecked tractors wherever I went. But <laughs> I wasn't much of a farmer, but I loved it. And uh, I think I've told the story on this uh, podcast before how I met uh, Israel's ambassador uh, to the United States when I was 15 years old. And I, I shook his hand and I swore I'm going to be him someday. I'm going to be Israel's ambassador to the United States. The guy's name was Yitzhak Rabin. And later I became a, an advisor to Rabin. And, uh, and then, you know, eventually, so I had to leave Hollywood and, and come here at least to try to be a, a soldier. So I was a, a lone soldier, Chayel Bodet and the paratroopers. And, uh, and from there, I just, I never went back to Hollywood, but I never stopped writing. I never stopped writing for a second. So I, my first fiction book, it was called Sand Devil. You mentioned it. It, it's, it's, it is the best short fiction collection about the Negev ever written because it's the only short collection <laughs> of short fiction about the Negev ever written. Uh, after that, I published uh, with Penguin uh, a novel called Reunion. You mentioned it was based on my father's World War II stories. I used to go to his reunions. So it's also, these are, a lot of these things that people point out that I like murder and mystery. So these were murder and mystery stories. Um, and these, are, these are, what, 20 years? This is 20 years ago. 20 years ago. Then I went into government. Now, in Israel, as in the United States and other countries, if you're in government, you can't publish books, if you know this. You can write books, but you can't publish books. Really? It, you, the president doesn't publish a book. When he's in the White House, he waits till he gets out. No, but but Bennett just released a book, uh, right? How to win a. Yeah, but was he was he in government when he published it? Ah, not uh, in government. Yeah, it's yeah, Knesset. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I was in government, so I couldn't mm. publish, and I was I was ambassador. I couldn't publish it. This is you know the our state controller determined this, um, and um, so I had to wait. But that doesn't mean I stopped writing. So the the Night Archer and other stories, a collection of fifty one stories, many of them are written when I was in government. Hmm. And um, I can talk about length about the book, but as soon as I got out of government, I began to publish again. I wrote this uh, book, uh, the next one that's coming out, to all call on truth um, during Corona. I had a lot of time to write, and I have another novel which will probably come out in the fall or the winter uh, called Fourth Cliff. Wow! Which is a, so you're a very, prolific. You know what do you get to do during Corona? I wrote a lot of articles. You know, I write for Tablet and I write for the Atlantic Monthly, um, but. That's what you do in Corona. Yeah. And but what's uh, easier for you? Because your bestsellers, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, are the nonfiction books. Mm -hmm. um, so I wonder, like, what's easier and more fun for you? 
if, you know, as, as they say, as they say in colloquial English, a six of one and half dozen of the other. They come from very different places. I can sit down and write history and then go right to write fiction right after that because they come from different parts of my brain. And it, true the other way around. I can write fiction and go to history. And it, it, it just depends. It depends on how tough the story is. I loved writing these short stories. Uh, to All Call and Truth was painful. It was a tough book. Uh, and I go back to you know, the world of my, of my childhood and my youth, which, which a world that doesn't exist anymore. It's about you know, a Jewish commu- a suburban community in the early 70s when it's the last moment where Jews were still an ethnicity in the United States. Um, and you know, the, the question of all the great American Jewish writers, Philip Roth, Saul Bellow, Bernard Malibu, they all ask the same question. How can I be a, a Jew and an American at the same time? You know, Saul Bellow's famous book, The Adventures of Augie March, right? Uh, Nobel Prize winner, begins with a sentence. It starts off with, I am American Chicago born. You think John Updike had to start his novels like that? With an assertion, hey, I'm American, all right? Today, you go forward 50 years, young American Jews not only do not ask that question, how I can be American Jewish at the same time, they don't even understand the question. Mm-hmm. You, even a... Uh, a, a Haredi in Brooklyn doesn't ask that. Doesn't ask that question. Of course, I'm American. I'm American as anybody. But that was the world I grew up in, where there was a tension between Jewish identity. Do you think the tension is disappearing because slowly the the Judaism is disappearing, the Jewish identity? No, because I said before, you know, in Brooklyn too. I think it has to do with that America has become much more diverse and has embraced its diversity. I grew up in white bread America. You know, if you were going to be an astronaut, you were going to be Scott Carpenter and Buzz Aldrin. You were going to be a wasp. Um, there were quota systems on the Ivy League schools. Um, you know, the, the, the nightly news people were all, you know, Chet Huntley, David Brinkley. And uh, it was a white bread country. I mean, when Kennedy was elected... But the was quotas a, was, wasn't, were on Jews as well? Uh, uh, they were prim- primarily on Jews. On Jews. Uh, primarily the on 70s. Jews. Yeah, they started to fall off by the 70s. But they, you know, as you're going to the 70s, they still had them. Um, and... It was it was harder to get in, certainly from the East Coast Jew to get into these colleges. And um, when the quotas came down, so many things changed for American Jews. One of the things that changed was the historic melding of young Jews with young wasps. And you you will be very hard pressed today to find a truly wasp family without Jewish members. Hmm. And where did they meet each other? Ivy League schools. That's where they met each other. Daughter of the ex-president, right? Everybody, you know, the joke in the 2016 election was that uh, of the three candidates, you know, Bernie Sanders, um, Hillary, and uh, and Trump, only one of them had non-Jewish grandchildren, and that was Bernie Sanders. <laughs> <laughs> really, that basically says it all there, right? Doesn't it? Yeah. It says it all. But yeah. it says it all also in the other side, meaning, yeah. as I mentioned before, that there's this assimilation, right? The Bernie, Bernie Sanders, he's the Jewish one of them. and the, it didn't. I know, yeah. but it changed the nature of the American Jewish community. It really did. And so you miss, miss those times? I don't miss you them. You long for them when you write the, the book? There's, the a, stories? there's a nostalgia factor. Um, you know, there's a point where they're sitting in a delicatessen. My two characters are sitting in a deli and they're having brunch on Sunday and they're, you know, they're serving herring and they're serving pastrami and, you know, there's a Manischewitz calendar on the wall from a year before that no one's bothered to take down. And, um, and Sandy Cooper, you know, says to his best friend, he says, you know, this world's going to disappear. And his friend says to him, yeah, they all do. They all do. And all worlds are, you know, destined or doomed to disappear. Um, one of the reasons I chose to go back to 1972 in this book is that it, that, that period evokes our present time. Um, 1972 was an incredibly a disruptive period. There were bombs going off in federal offices. There was the weather underground. There was uh, terrible protests on campus, Kent State Massacre. And if you grew up during that period, you said, oh, America probably doesn't stand much of a chance. We're not going to be here in another 10 years. And so... 1972 very much evokes 2019-2021 in the the great uncertainty and the great dislocation it it, it engendered. So so it'll be familiar to readers, even even to young readers who didn't leave through that period, they'll be familiar to them. So, but there's also this element of tension between uh, Jewish and American in the book? Yes, well, when I started writing the book, here's an interesting question that I tell you, that... I grew up as the as a um, as the only Jewish kid in a neighborhood of Sicilians, 
And I got like fun to me. Uh, yeah, it was. It got the stuffing belt. They they were great when they got to be older, but when the kid, they beat the hell out of me. Oh. Okay, I was so a Christ you weren't killer. invited for ZD or something. No, 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 no. You were. I was Christ made killer. into ZD. <laughs> 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 and um, and you know, that had a big impact on my Zionist development. Obviously, you know, big impact. You could hit in the head. It's an impact. So. Um, <laughs> And 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 uh, how did I get onto this guy? So you asked me about about it. So so I started writing this book, and there's a tremendous amount of anti-Semitism in this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sandy Cooper encant- encounters anti-Semitism in the school. And when I first started writing, I thought, well, Americans are not going to believe this because most Americans didn't have the experience I had. I, I've met American Jews who never encountered anti-Semitism. They grew up in San Francisco. They grew up in New York City. They never encountered anti-Semitism. And yet, you know, starting in 2017, 18. The level, uh, the escalation of anti-Semitism in America will make this look familiar to them as well. Hmm. Ah, there was anti. This is what going on back in 1972. It's not new. And and it was anti-Semitism, which was you know, it depends where you were in the country, was deeply ingrained, deeply ingrained. The, I mean, it'll it'll kind of I guess resonate with the cultural discourse that's going on in the United States right now. I mean, racism is kind of on the. Privileges. Yeah, yeah privilege. I, I thought maybe this book may prove a little controversial. Okay, brace yourselves. Why? Because I have uh, three characters in this book who are African Americans. Mm. How dare you, exactly. a white man? And right. they, are, they are Jews diff- are white, by the way. If you didn't. By know. the way, I did not grow up right. <laughs> if one <laughs> told me when I was like twelve years old, twelve years old, that I was white, I'd look like you're crazy. <laughs> I, I played sports in college, and I'll never forget. You know, etched into the the uh, the door of one of the stalls of my bathroom was the question, are Jews white? <laughs> and someone had scrolled in. I want it on t-shirts. Someone needs to answer okay, this. No, so they answered it. And the, underneath it, someone had scrolled in, yes, but. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but. But when That's I was going to school, it was, it was yes, but. Now, Jews have gone from, American Jews have gone from being yes, but to being the ultimate white people. They are the ultimate affluent, privileged white people. But that was not the way I grew up. And um, I personally grew up, you know, outside of Newark. My father worked uh, in Newark with the African-American community, dedicated his life to it and building those bridges. So I, I grew up around these people and I, I wanted them in the book. But I'm, I'm dealing with African-Americans caught up in this period in different ways. Yes, they're encountering um, prejudice. And yes, they're inter- interacting with Jews who are on one hand very liberal, but they, you know, they'll tell anti-black jokes behind their back. But there's one character who's quite a central character in the book who's a, a 13, 14-year-old African-American girl who's the only African-American student in this junior high school. Mm-hmm. And her dilemma is, is rather unique. What's her dilemma? What does every 13 and 14-year-old want to be? Mekubal, superstar. No, they want to be like everybody else. Ah, okay. You don't want to stand out. You mm-hmm. want to be like everybody else. But because of the, her, the color of her skin, she's standing out. And she's standing out in a, in a bizarre way because this is, on, this is on the, you know, the crest of the civil rights movement. And everyone's being super, super nice to her and giving her high grades. And she goes to the guidance counselor and said, help me with this. And the guidance counselor says, I, I've encountered many adolescents who are suffering because they're not popular enough. I've never encountered an adolescent who's suffering because she's too popular. And, uh, and this becomes one of the, the themes in the book around this character. And uh, so I don't know whether, you know, it's scary I'm, I'm going to get censored for this, but, you know. Yeah, and nowadays, making art, writing scripts, making movies, it's, it's scary with today's culture, right? You, you don't know where you'll stumble. I, for I example, am, slang, mm. like black slang. Can you write it or Very no? True. And certain words you can't use. And, and believe me, I, at the ultimate day, I you know I tend to think that the, the text suffers from it because I'm I'm dancing around things, um, and it, these are the only things I dance around. Um, in the short story collection, I, I had really wonderful reviews. I can't complain about the reviews, but there was one reviewer, uh, which in an overall very good review, uh, took me to task for uh, for one story about a Muslim leader from the 15th century, who mm. was 15th century was a cruel leader. He's torturing some people. And that was interpreted by this interviewer as anti-Muslim. And uh, there's cruelty throughout the book, but only my depiction of this Muslim leader, who's actually in a very difficult dilemma in his cruelty. Um, and it's called Slave to Power. He's a slave who runs the empire. That's the way it worked in medieval Islamic empires. Um, and so he's, he's, he's dealing with questions of freedom and assertion. I'd like to think that all my stories are about three things. They're about the story, 
whether it's a love story, a ghost story, or a war story, or a diplomacy story. Um, it's about um, the experiences that they draw on. So if you have a story about uh, social climbers in Washington, these are people I knew. If you story about soldiers, these are people I knew. Um, it's about ghosts. It's about ghosts I knew. And then the third thing is I want it to be about something. I want it to be about human relationships. I want it to be about the nature of reality. I want to say something in each story. Um, in the novel, too, I want to, it draws on my experiences. It's, uh, I, hopefully, it's a good read. You can't put it down. And, and I, I want to say something about the nature of, of, of relationships, the natures of um, sometimes the often addictive nature of relationships. Um, what do you mean? Well, my main character gets addicted to a, in a relationship hmm. and a very dangerous relationship. I mentioned there's a there's a murder afoot in here. So I'm not giving away anything because it actually opens with the murder. So oh. you're going to get the murder uh, okay. on the first page. Okay. Okay. The question is, you know, who done it and why? Um, I wouldn't call this the janitor, name. obviously. Oh, you can't, you can't do that because the janitor's African American. So you're not going to oh. do that. You know, I get really okay. good. He's terrific. <laughs> He's based on it, based on a real character, too, a person I, I greatly admired growing up and, um, and taught me a lot, taught me how to play chess. Really? Yeah, just anime. like just like in the Queen's Gambit. Yeah. The Queen's Gambit. The janitor taught me how to play chess. Yeah. Wow. Just wow. like the Queen's game. Yeah, yeah. I didn't quite go to the you know. You didn't go on to become a child prodigy. <laughs> no, no, I did not. I did not. Yeah. Uh, nah. Yeah, I'll be a child <laughs> prodigy. Yeah. But he did. Taught me how to play chess. Wow. Uh, so, so, so I mean, after all this writing and after like a year in Corona, do you not miss politics? I miss politics. You do? You're sure? Yeah, sure. Really? If I, I don't miss itch. You got to scratch. I. Uh, it's. It's not. It's. it's it's not, you know, sitting at three o'clock in the morning and voting on 5,000 bills where you were basically a finger. They tell you they tell you what to vote for. Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, all night long. And the big fear is you're going to fall asleep. That's the big fear. And um, <laughs> everyone's always jabbing me. Wake up, wake up. And you don't miss that. What you miss is the interaction with the Israeli public and be able to serve your public. And you really, people don't understand that in front of your office at Knesset, there's a long line of people who need help who view you as their address in Knesset, whether it be Olim Kharashim, uh, lone soldiers, um, Druze. I had all these different constituents that I worked with. And that there's a tremendous amount of you know, gratification in that. And also because the Knesset acts as a foreign policy uh, body, um, I was engaged in diplomacy all the time. So I had the diplomacy of the Knesset. I had the diplomacy of the prime minister's office. I mean, I did... W extraordinary trips around the world, meet with foreign, I really did a week go by that I did not meet with the president, a prime minister, or a foreign minister, all the wow. time. Um, and that, that, you, you can't get more their, interesting than that. Their mm -hmm. ear. You had their ear. Well, I was, I was representing the state of Israel. I mean, they weren't meeting me qua me, they're meeting me as the person who was going to speak for the government. Mm -hmm. um, and but I, I guess they used your knowledge and consulted with you. And, yeah. I tried to be as you know candid as possible. Boy, I never forget reading with the minister of the French government. And uh, and just lacing into him about the the uh, the laboring the labeling policy they were going to label mm. Jewish products you know from Judea and Samaria I said you know as a Frenchman aren't you ashamed of yourself and do you know what happened in France in the forties about labeling Jewish goods how could you possibly do that today and it's totally anti-Semitic you're not labeling Turkish goods from Cyprus now are you or Chinese goods from Tibet or, are you now? or anything you're actually doing yeah. it just for the Jewish state you are an you sir an anti-Semite and. I don't care. That's not, you know, you got, people have to hear this and they're shocked. Shocked, so, shocked, shocked. Europeans are very it, interested. Did it change anything? Uh, he converted. France, now he's a rabbi. France, <laughs> France was, was, uh, was a country that was going to apply the labeling and ultimately didn't. But I learned a lot about, particularly about Europeans. I, I, that I learned that anti-Semitism is so deeply ingrained in, in the European worldview that they don't even know they're anti-Semitic. They think they're not anti-Semitic. I was sitting with, this is just, you know, anecdotally, I'm sitting with, I'm, running, I'm, running, I'm leading an Israeli delegation to the Dutch uh, Foreign Affairs Committee in their parliament. And they're sitting there with right-wingers, left-wingers, centrists, and they say, well, the, the, the bitterest debates we have in the Dutch parliament are about Israel. Hmm. And everybody says, the right-winger, <laughs> left-wingers, yeah, yeah, those are our bitterest debates. I said, let me get this straight. You are facing a catastrophic refugee problem. Your economy's in shambles, Okay. And what you're talking about is Israel? Let me get this straight. And suddenly, as they say in Hebrew, the Simon falls. You understand that the Europeans are having these bitter debates not about Israel, but it's about themselves. Them. It's about themselves. And we are the lens through which Europe looks at itself. And it has been that way, I think, not just for hundreds of years, but potentially thousands of years. It's the way the Romans, the Romans were the non-Jews. 
Um, so when they want to stop looking at themselves, they kill six million. Well, I think it got things probably from the European perspective, things got out of hand with that one. But they don't want to, you know, let's look like Zim, as they say, go overboard. <laughs> but um, it's um, if, you know emblazoned on the front of many cathedrals in Europe is the picture of Ecclesiastic hmm. uh, overthrowing synagogue, which is usually a strong uh, church uh, pushing out a, a coward Jewish woman. And if you go to, if you look at uh, a church not far from here, Nabu Gosh, m- m- built during the Crusades in the 11th century, there's a, there's a wall painting, the same thing, of, uh, of Ecclesiastes putty pushing out synagogue. Why? There are no Jews back then. The, the Crusaders killed them all. And, uh, and if you look at the Roman coin that was minted after the destruction of the Second Temple, it was Judea Capta. And what you see on that coin is a coward Jewish woman being pushed by a, by a Roman under a tree. So I mean, this image is deeply ingrained in, in, the, uh, in the European mentality. And um, you know, it, there are parts of our interaction with Europe are very positive. They, they give us a lot of funds for scientific development through the EU. And, also yeah. to debatable NGOs that strive to yeah, it, undermine the Jewish state. They, they try to undermine the Jewish state. They try to create facts on the ground. And well, one hand scenario. helps, and the other hand destroys. But what they have in common is they all derive from the same obsession. <laughs> they're, all, they're, they're just really obsessed with it. They place. wouldn't leave us alone. They, Let us be. You know, for good and for bad. For good and for bad, they won't leave us alone. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's extraordinary how deeply grained it is. Um, I'll just tell you a funny story. I'm going to write about this. I was home. Uh, my father passed away oh, uh, in December. And, How old uh, was he? He was almost 96. Oh, you know, wow. They lived a long and wonderful life. And, um, and we were, one of the last meals we had with him was at the Thanksgiving meal. And they had the round-the-clock care. And in the United States, many of the caregivers are from Georgia. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Georgians are, first of all, wonderful people, but they also have one of the, you're Georgian? Uh, I did high school in Georgia. Ah, because they, they have almost no history of anti-Semitism. I mean, except for this guy, oh, Stalin. Really? You know, they really don't. Uh, uh, this Ge- I don't mean Georgia in the United States. Uh, I mean Georgians, Georgia. real Georgia. Okay, okay, okay. Golgia, what they okay, call here is rather, you know, dimin- d- d- dismissively uh, Golgia. Uh, and uh, and we're sitting around the, the table and we're discussing, uh, of course, one one does in November. We're discussing Donald Trump and his policies toward toward Israel, and discussing about the the recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital and why it was done. And um, the caregiver comes to the table carrying the uh, turkey. And this is a person really like a member of the family. A member of the family knows all the brachot, you know, everything. He says, well, it was obviously why he did it. The Jews control America. They control all the power in America. <laughs> We just looked at her. Casually. And said, whoa, where'd that come from? And then you realize just, you know, as uh, the Prime Minister Yitzhak Shamir used to say, they drink it with their mother's milk. Yeah. Okay. So let's play a little thought game. Um, Let's say that I'm Bennett or Lapid, right? And I managed to overthrow Prime Minister Netanyahu, and now I'm the Prime Minister. Mm -hmm. And now I come to former Ambassador Michael Oren, and I ask him, what should I do with the whole Biden-Iran situation? Mm -hmm. What would you say to me? I would say, I would quote Ronald Reagan, stay the course. Why stay the course? Because our policy right now is the right policy. And I profoundly, emphatically believe this. Um, Define this policy? Policy is opposing renewal of the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, the deal is a terrible deal. It's actually, it, it's a fraud. It's actually not a deal. It does not block Iran's path to the bomb. It, it paves Iran's path to the bomb. If you give me two hours, I'll explain it to you. I will, I will direct your, Kadima, the, your listeners to the it. article I published in the Atlantic Monthly about, about two months ago, which is the Israeli position, why this is a disaster. And uh, gentlemen, it will lead to war. If they renew this thing, it will, we will have a regional war, and I see no way around it because it, the, the agreement will enable Iran eventually to break out and create a bomb. By the time it and does... And regain the funds. No, it, in the meantime, they will gain hundreds of billions of dollars and legitimacy, and they will surround us with even more missiles. It's hard to imagine more missiles, but they will. But, and when I mean, we try to stop them from breaking out to get the bomb, we're going to be hit. We're going to be hit by thousands and thousands of rockets. But it will happen. Right, I mean, yeah. Joe Biden is is running to them with in with open oh, arms. They, they, it will happen. They'll renew it. Yeah, I think they'll renew. It. I think they're, right now Iran is escalating all the time, and America's de-escalating all the time. So if you're an Iranian, what's to prevent you from escalating even further? 
And, um, you know, the, the Iranian, the position of the administration, and, and these are people I know very well. I worked with, I worked, first of all, I worked with Biden at a time when uh, Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State, basically boycotted the embassy. So my, my point of contact. When he was still coherent. Who? Biden. Biden. No, he was quite coherent, very coherent. I don't know. But he, uh, he was wonderful. I loved him. I love the guy. He's so interesting. He's one of the rare politicians I've met who actually likes people and <laughs> likes talking to people and funny and Every other sentence was, as, as my father used to say, he had great ones. My favorite one was, as my father used to say, never, sac never crucify yourself on a small cross. <laughs> Don't translate okay. that into Hebrew. Great line. Anyway, so, so he was wonderful. Tony Blinken was great. Um, uh, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor. These are all fine people who are committed to Israel, committed to our security, but they're also Democrats. And uh, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party is not the small branch it was during the Obama years. Now it's very big. And they are not afraid of Biden. They are quite, quite a little bit afraid of Obama. And they, the, the, the progressives have made the renewal of the JCPOA something like their holy grail. They don't even care what's in it. It's just this is the litmus of whether you're a Democrat or not. Which is the number one rule of negotiation, right? Don't come. Don't want it more than the other side. You ever negotiate in the old city and the, the shuk, you know? And, you know, you have to be able to walk away. Yeah. You have to be able to walk away. Yeah. And you can't keep on pushing more and more money across the table at the merchant, you know, he's going to take you. He's going to make his price go up, not down. But what does it mean, though, when you say push forward with the current program, like with the current plan? Because the current plan, it seems like it won't work. It won't prevent the deal. It we are going to, like Aiton said. Oh, our plan. Our it won't, plan. It won't plant the deal. It won't plant the deal. But we are establishing our legitimacy issue if we have to act once the deal is renewed. Hmm. And I think that's important. I think when, when, you know, I have many disagreements with the prime minister, but when he says we are not bound by this deal in any way, that's an extremely important statement. We are not bound but by this deal. what can we do? Well, I'm not going to go into everything we can do. Obviously, we can do a lot, and I think we have done some things. I think it's the beginning, not, the, uh, not even the end of the beginning. And, um, but if it's an inevitable hmm. outcome that the deal will be renewed... So it's an inevitable outcome that there will be a regional war. Nothing is inevitable, but it's highly okay. likely. It's highly likely. So and, there will uh, be a war. What would that war? I just, I just, I have gamed this out in my mind many times. So yeah. what does it look like? It means that Iran, the, 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 the JCPOA contains sunset clauses mm -hmm. that begin to lift sanctions starting in two years, 2023. In seven years, everything Iran that is doing is doing illegally now it can do a hundred times over legally under the JCPOA. So think about that. They're talking about the ability to enrich enough uranium, not for one bomb, but for a hundred bombs, if not more. Okay, that's just the enrichment. The JCPOA is 154 pages long. Exactly one half of one page deals with weaponization, making a warhead. And yet we know from the archive that the Mossad got out of Tehran that they're making a weapon. Yeah. Okay. And the whole missile program. And the missile program, this is the most extraordinary thing. Not only does it not delay their missile program, it accelerates it by lifting the UN embargo on it. So you've got the enrichment radium, you've got the warhead to put it in, and you've got the missile to, del to deliver it, and you're going to have that within a decade. Meanwhile, as I said before, they're going to get hundreds of billions of dollars. They're not going to build schools and hospitals with this in the arm, right? They're going to invest it in Hezbollah. They're going to invest it in Hamas. And they're going to surround us with hundreds of thousands of rockets. Right now, they surround us with about 160,000. So why does well, Biden and Biden's people, why do they push for that deal? Why? Well, it's I mentioned, so counterintuitive. Well, you know, as they say, all politics are domestic, domestic. There are domestic politics at play here. That's one. But the bigger reason is this. The America that, you know, I grew up in, I talked about the white bread America going away, but it's also the America of the superpower, the America that was able to project power, willing and able to project large-scale military power around the world. You know, as late as, you know, 2003, 2006, when, you know, George Bush sent 600,000 soldiers into Iraq and Afghanistan. That America's gone. There, I can't think of any situation where America will project power like that today, almost, in, you know, in any, given the provo any provocation. And... The only real way to stop Iran from getting the bomb and to negotiate an effective agreement is to have a realistic military option on the table. But the Iranians know, and frankly, we know, that's not going to happen. And so if, if, it has, if America has no teeth here, the only teeth it has are economic teeth. And um, 
officially the Biden administration's position is we're going to renew the JCPOA. And then we're Trump work- got them to their knees economically. Yeah, and if, if you know Trump had been elected, they may would have they may have collapsed, may have given. I think he would have negotiated with Iran also. Uh, I was certain that he negotiated with Iran, but maybe a much better position to demand you know changes. But um, once they go back to the JCPOA, and there'll be no changes, the the Biden administration said they want to seek a longer and stronger deal. Well, the question we ask ourselves here: with what leverage? You've given it all up to get back to the JCPOA. You've listed all the sanctions. With what leverage? Uh, the Iranian foreign minister had an interesting comment the other day. just really got my attention. He said, um, we're happy to negotiate you know, a longer deal. We look forward to the time we can sit with the Americans and discuss their arms sales to the Middle East. You get that? Americans think they're going to go talk about the ballistic program. No, the Iranians are going to talk about American arms sales to the Gulf and to Israel. And all of a sudden, that's going to become a bargaining chip. You want us to cut out our ballistic missiles? Hey, maybe cut back on some of that military. Well, there was already a story that came out in the yeah. National Review, I think, about about, about yeah. Kerry selling uh, yeah. intel, Israeli intel, to the or or information Zarif. about Israeli. He wasn't selling; I, he was probably imparting. But um, yeah, you know. actually, he was just giving it away. Well, just do whatever. A, I wasn't selling it, but he was uh, sharing it. Let's put yeah. it that way. Yeah. And um, that was the. I don't know whether that's true or not. I work with Senator Kenny. Senator Kennedy. There's an interesting Freudian slip. Senator <laughs> Kerry. Uh, both had great hair. Both in this, and they have great jaws. Um, <laughs> both in the uh, in the Senate and then in, in the State Department. And um, you know what can I say? Here's a person who gave at the end of his term uh, one of the longest diplomatic uh, speeches in, in modern memory, condemning Israel for and blaming Israel for the failure of a peace process. Uh, which I participated in, and which it failed because the Palestinians walked away, not because of settlements, but this, this just obsession with settlements. And he gave this speech at a time when a half a million Syrians were being massacred, and America did nothing. So I would say that, I've, I've said it before, I think that uh, John Kerry has an unhealthy obsession, we've used that word a lot today, w- with the state of Israel. But you know, and you're, then, you're comfortable calling the Europeans... Obsessive. Uh, no, anti-Semitic. anti-Semitic. Do you not think on Kerry's part that's anti-Semitism? I think it's much more complex than that. He comes from a family that was partly Jewish. His brother is quite Jewish. Great guy, uh, Cam, and uh, very active in the community. Um, it's complicated with him. It's like Malin Albright. These are the people who came from Europe escaping the Nazis and, and all of a sudden became wasps. And the uh, democratic, progressive in general? Well, he started that way, you know, in, 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 as, a, as a protester during the Vietnam period. But, um, but I'm saying, are they know. borderline, some of them borderline anti-Semitic, those people? You know, I want to say what Larry Summers said um, when he was president of Harvard uh, back in the early part of the century. He said, you know, some people are, are, are guilty of anti-Semitism, not in intent, but effect. All right, singling out Israel in that way, you know, for an hour and a half speech at a time when America's doing nothing to rescue a half a million Syrians from getting killed. Well, you're going to condemn, you know, a couple hundred Jews living on a hilltop, okay? Maybe it's not, in, you know, maybe it doesn't accord with American policy. I get it. But really, I remember when, um, even when Biden was here and we, you know, embarrassed him by announcing a, a neighborhood that was going to be built in seven years in Ramat Shlomo, he condemned our decision. Now, in, in the diplomatic world, there's a you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a menu yeah. <laughs> of, of words you can do, you can deplore, you can regret, okay? Condemn is used for terrorism. So under that administration, our settlement policy was elevated or whatever, lowered to the level of terrorism. That's extraordinary. This is Jews living in their homeland. I don't care what you think about settlements, but this is Jews living in the land of Israel. Think about this. But but if, I, I'm not done yet. One oh, okay. last point okay. about John Kerry, okay. and I can't help this. Okay. I can't help this. At the signing of the JCPOA, okay, in 2015, he is on the stage with Iranian Foreign Minister Zarif, the foreign minister that represents the most repressive regime on the planet, a regime that seeks to destroy the state, to, 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 to basically commit genocide, a regime which denies the Holocaust in which John Kerry lost family members. And he's up there smiling, thinking this is the greatest thing in the world. Is that not something wrong with that picture? Am I the only one saying that? And a few years later, <laughs> allegedly, he goes and I'm, leaks. I'm, if it's true. I don't it, know if it's true, but I'm, I'm, it's I'm, true. I'm contextualizing here. But if it's true, <laughs> what, what, would you, what would you make of it? Nothing. Not surprising. 
He denied it. Okay, he denied it. Okay, denied it. But um, I also know that when we, you know, when we were alleged to have been acting in Syria, okay, get that little yeah. location, which was pretty much every night, we never claimed credit. That was our policy, you know, opaqueness. And we did this because we didn't want to force the Syrians into reacting against us. And we didn't want to get into a war. Every morning when we woke up, it was leaked to the papers. And we didn't leak it. Which reminds me the <laughs> recent story with, Welcome the, to my world. with right. the ship, right? In uh, Sudan or yeah. Eritrea a couple of months ago that uh, there was this, uh, someone did this uh, mm. clandestine operation, right? Uh, someone. Yeah, Somehow. and it was leaked to the New York Times. Right. And at the beginning, it, there were rumors high official Israelis did it. But later, uh, other rumors claimed, no, it, were the, it was the American administration hmm. who leaked. And the, oh, they that, leaked it. They, yeah, yeah. they leaked it before the operation. Ooh. And that risked the lives of some countries' uh, soldiers. Yeah. I know it's it's it is it is very problematic in that way. So I, what can I say? I don't I don't know whether he did or not, but I'll contextualize it, and I wouldn't be surprised. Um, there we go. How about so, that? Huh? So, but I I still don't understand what that war is going to look like. I mean, you said how Iran might prepare for that war, and what what the situation. But would it be full out war in the well, middle? Well, I'm going to be in Italy. Yeah. <laughs> I'll direct you to here. another article. Uh, I wrote for the Atlantic Monthly called The Next Middle Eastern War, where I actually set out how this happens, why it happens, and what it looks like. Part of what it looks like is what the IDF is training to do every day, and that is to go into the 200 southern Lebanese villages under which Hezbollah has buried about 100,000 rockets. And they do this on purpose because they know that for us to get the rockets, we're going to have to destroy the village, which is what they want. They want us to be, they want us to be condemned by the international community uh, for war crimes. They did it in 2006, too. Uh, and they'll do it again. Hamas does the same thing. Um, and that'll be part of it. The big question is whether Israel... This time we should keep the land, I say. You say? I don't know. Spent a lot of time in Lebanon. Very pretty country. It's glad to get out of there, though. Um, and the question is whether we're gonna, we are going to take this battle to what the Saudis call the head of the snake. All right. So when they're shelling Tel Aviv, what do we do? Do we only respond in Beirut or do we respond in Tehran? And that's a big question because we have, we have capabilities. I won't go into them, but we have capabilities, and um, you know, it's going to be it's going to be an issue. But I, the estimate, by the way, in two thousand six, in the second Lebanon war, Israel was hit between with between two hundred and four hundred rockets a day. The IDF estimate for the next it was before war before Iron Dome. Yes, 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 yes. The whole, remember the whole north cleared out. I was in that war for fifty four days. Oh my God. Um, fought, fought in. I was in Lebanon. I was in Lebanon. You read about my my, my other book, Ally. It's a non nonfiction book. <laughs> no, no, non-fiction. <laughs> no, 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 fiction book. It, it reads a little like fiction. It's about my time. You know, it's a memoir. But um, uh, the estimate, the IDF estimate for the next war is be, Israel will be hit with, the, with between two and four thousand rockets. Imagine this. A day. A day. And that will overwhelm Iron Dome. You think Iron Dome can keep up with that way? It can't. And even if you know Iron Dome, even if it's ninety percent effective, it means one out of ten rockets going to get through. And they're going to have they're going to have rockets that now have you know what's called cruise capabilities, individual targeting. They're not just standoff rockets. So it's going to be a completely different level. And the time is going to be the, the, the our you time will be very fast. That's very fast, and that's what the IDF keeps on training on. Have you noticed all these big uh, maneuvers up north? It's just it. You got to go through these villages. You got to going to have to clear them out. But that's just that threat. We're going to be hit by rockets from uh, Shiite militias in Iraq. We'll be hit by rockets from Houthi rebels in Yemen. We'll be hit by rockets from Hamas and Islamic Jihad. Also, you we'll, have uh, drones. And drones. A lot of things. We'll have lots. We'll have multiple threats. Like, you know. Uh, so I, I don't want to sound, you know. Clean the shelters. Uh, I don't want to sound apocalyptic. But this is, this is, you know, this, this is a kind of apocalypse. Listen, we're going to survive it. We're going to, we're going to win the war. I, I have no doubt about that. But... Uh, the, the, the stage is set by this Iran nuclear deal. It provides the cover, the legitimacy, and the money for Iran. So uh, one last question on the topic. Is there a chance that if Biden's voted out in uh, 2024? Well, I think the then, Republicans uh, will make it on their platform and withdraw from the JCPOA. But, I mean, will it, I mean is, it, is it inevitable to happen before then, or is there time I think, to... I think, I think it'll happen before. It could happen tonight before we know. Um, yeah. 
And I think the Iranians are very smart. Um, and they now, they, 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 if you notice, they began to escalate to increase the number and speed of the centrifuges only after November when they realized they had a new administration. They didn't dare do it with Trump. Mm-hmm. They didn't do it with Trump. And uh, so they're, they're, they're no dummies. <laughs> yeah. I always say, you know, they invented, uh, they, the Iranians claim they invented chess. So did the Indians, but the Iranians claim they invented chess and they play on three boards at one time. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the, the enrichment, the, the warhead, and the missile. It's like a Garrett Kasparov game with many, many, like yeah. one of those roundabout games. The kind of chess I never learned, my janitor never taught me to play. <laughs> or at least he taught me, I just never, never could accomplish that. But they are, they're very smart. Hmm. And you tipped your hat to these guys. So, so how come, I mean, it begs the question, listening to you and with your uh, background in history and in politics, why when you go to write, you write about, you know, a, 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 a high school guidance counselor and you know and not you know these these bombastic political dramas that are it's uh it, what speaks to me speaks to my soul one of the my great failures in life is that i've never learned to write i could never write fiction in in hebrew so mm-hmm. I, i speak in hebrew I interview I, i write op-eds in hebrew um but the language of my soul is, is english several of the stories in the night archer take place in israel the very israeli stories um And many of them are Jewish stories. They're Holocaust stories. Um, I, I would urge your readers to read a story called Afi Komen about a 13-year-old uh, American Jewish kid bored to death at his Seder and goes off at, during the Afi Komen sunt and finds out something earth-shattering about his father. <laughs> read Afi Komen. Uh, you'll get a kick out of it. Okay. Trust me. Trust me okay. on this one, okay? okay? Trust me on this one. And... Uh, So I'm drawing on, on my many experiences and I've been blessed by having these many experiences. I'm, I'm blessed by having survived some of these many experiences. I was in, I mentioned that I was in, in 2006 in the second Lebanon war, but I've been in several wars. I was in, in the siege of Beirut in 1982 and, and, and I took all of my war experiences and put them into about a page and a half. One of the short stories takes place during a war. And, uh, and there are people who have been in wars, that's all they write about is the war. And mm-hmm. I, I, uh, I don't want to, I want to write about being a father and a, And a husband and a grandfather and and i want to write about uh i want to write about relationships i want to write about god there's a lot of stories that deal with faith i am a person of faith so it's important for me to write about faith i'm thinking about faith all the time one of my favorite stories is called day eight um and it's about it asks the question or tries to answer the question why did god give human beings souls why what's that about and uh But it's kind of a comedy. It's kind of a funny thing. It's about uh, God's conversations with Satan about the soul. So, um, so I'm thinking, okay, so why, I think if I can be very uh, frank with you, I think people sometimes are uncomfortable with this because um, they want to pigeonhole somebody and <laughs> say, okay, yeah. you're this, but you're not that. And it, it, it becomes unsettling. But what can I say? Especially since there's a stigma of... Uh politicians that that they have to be very cynical and i yeah. think that's kind of like almost uh like paradoxical to the stigma of a novelist or of uh you know but i writer. wasn't a cynical politician either um i went into politics honestly listen i love the rush and i love the influence i love the attention don't don't get me wrong but i just what really guided me was my love of this country and love of these people i love my people I just do they drive me crazy sometimes but i love them And uh, I love this country until it hurts. I'd cave. And to me, you know, people would say to me, why, why would you want to be ambassador and going to Knesset? What a, down, what, a, you know, what a downer that is. And I'd say, what are you, are you crazy? I, I get to be a democratically elected representative in the first Jewish parliament in 2,000 years. You understand what a privilege that is? It's like, for me, it was mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'm, I'm being very genuine about this. I mean, really, I told you there were things about being in the Knesset that made me nuts, you know, the voting all night. But, uh, but th- that was just a great privilege. Fine, Ethan and I will run. Run! Okay. <laughs> I say this to people who are actually running for Knesset. They come to me sometimes. I say, well, why am I doing this? <laughs> um, there is a, a member of Knesset who was not in this Knesset, but was debating whether uh, he or she had done the right thing. And I said, you know, next time you're walking down the hall at two o'clock in the morning, pinch yourself. Just stop and pinch yourself and understand where you are in a historical sense. Understand where you are. Yeah. I have a little 
fantasy conversation with my great great grandfather so i see on the wall here <laughs> your pictures of your great grandparents yeah from the old country parents of my grandmother yeah yeah polish ah uh, yeah so i have a conversation with my great grandfather looks something like this mm-hmm. and i say to him the following you know we're gonna maybe going into our fifth election with this guy netanyahu and oh, i'm just going crazy i'm just so disturbed by it and my great-grandfather looks at me and says, wait a minute, let me get this straight. You live in an independent Jewish state in the land of Israel? You have the world's leading innovative economy? You have an army that's more than twice as large as the British and French armies combined? You speak Hebrew? You have great food and <laughs> beaches? And you're complaining about a fifth election? Let me get this straight. And this conversation actually helps me sometimes when I want to like tear my hair out about the fifth election. But I, I urge you and your listeners to have the conversation next time you're thinking that, you know, that all of this isn't worth it. Have that conversation. See what he says. I think that's a, that's good, a good note yeah. to end Gratitude. on. Yeah. Gratitude. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Michael Oren, thank Pleasure you guys. so much for coming again. Yeah. And guys, you're always you, invited. The book is actually coming out in, uh, next in a week. week. Next week. May yeah. 11th, right? To all who call in truth is from Psalm 45. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. You say it three times a day in the Ashray prayer. It's right there. Uh, and the Night Archer and other stories. And they're available for Kindle, Amazon, everything, bookstores, digital. In cuneiform and, hi- and hieroglyphs, it's all available. Uh, Did you read them for you, Audible? For Audible, it's Audible books. And uh, you read, you read them? I did not read these. Mm. I did not read them. They, they actually encourage you not to read your own books. I don't know why. Some guy with it. I, I got to choose of a number of people they gave me. Who do you like? Okay. I got the guy. I chose a guy with an Alabama accent. Um, <laughs> and uh, I didn't. I don't know. It's just a guy. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> wait, but you did read one of your books. No? I read Ally. Ally yeah. That is non 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 fiction. Non non non. But nice. uh, I didn't. It was very hard. Oh boy, I was days and days in a studio wow. but uh, it's interesting how hard it is to read a book but um i didn't so it, it, it's available on audio awesome Hannibal awesome guys to all who all right. call in truth the night archer check out also some of uh dr michael oren's old books sand devil reunion uh, and follow him on twitter and uh facebook, twitter, facebook. My, my Facebook is down for a bit. I'm having a whole issue with Facebook. Don't. This is like the, I, Good I keep company. On, I keep on getting hacked. So um, oh, right now, it's, it's a whole thing. It's okay. a whole thing. I've had my Twitter oh, hacked yeah. this year. Oh, good. So the price of writing, yeah. writing fiction. Of fame. <laughs> Thank you so much, right. Dr. Thank Oren. Guys. So Before we go, yes. Yes. Uh, we are sponsored by The Forward. Visit forward.com slash partner offer and enter promo code 2NJB to get an exclusive offer for podcast listeners. Also, you also Wolcheva, IsraelNationalNews.com. Check them out for great content in English. Yes. And last but not least, AJN.TimesOfIsrael.com, Australian Jewish News. Do check them out. Yes. Highly and of course, it. guys, we do this on our free time. So if you want to help us out, to NJB.com slash donate. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank Michael. you, guys. Thank you both. Goodbye. Once again. Bye, Bye guys. guys.